12-step programs that ask us to give our lives and wills over the care of God as we understand Him. God as we understand Him. But we don't. Understand, I mean. Our understanding has served to shove all higher powers into a constructed box. Or maybe it actually boxed us in. But either way, we are ready to unwrap our preconceived prejudice toward God and religion. To take off the boxing gloves, pun intended, and step outside the ring of comfort, the past, old traumas, fake news, church hurt, altar calls gone awry and attempt to maybe begin a lifelong journey of Unboxing God. (laughs) Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to Unboxing God with McCall and Cassidy. Last Tuesday, the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex Association released the third edition of its Trans Legal Mapping Report. This is a report that looks over a ton of research on how trans people are legally recognized in countries around the world, as well as where they're persecuted for their gender queerness. The report analyzes 143 different UN member states, as well as 19 other jurisdictions all over the globe. And... uh, There's not some great things to report, honestly. To date, at least 13 UN member states worldwide explicitly criminalize trans persons. Hmm. But, and this is Zan Kayim, he's the coordinator and co-author of the report, talking to Daily News. He said, we know that a much larger range of laws is used to target them in many more countries. Evidence collected from communities on the ground highlights how measures related to public nuisance, indecency, morality, loitering, sex work related offenses and consensual same sex activities, amongst others, are actively deployed for the same purpose. And they use these laws to target trans people. And it's like targeting cross-dressing, you know, cross-dressing regulations to target people who are expressing their gender in ways outside the norm. I mean, just last year, cross-dressing was targeted and criminalized all over Indonesia, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Malawi, Malaysia, Nigeria, Oman, South Sudan, Tonga, United Arab Emirates, Brunei, and the Gambia. Wow. So it sounds like we're still really behind here. Yeah. yeah. Same dude mentions the United States when he's talking about the regression or stagnation in legal gender recognition rights. Sure. Countries such as Guatemala, Hungary, Mongolia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, the United States, and Uruguay. Also potential for regression in both India and Nepal. So in light of this... We've decided to dedicate yet one more show of Unboxing God to trans topics. And once again, Cassidy is at the helm. So, Cassidy, I'm going to leave it to you. Okay, guys, this is Cassidy. Before we go any further, I wanted to personally throw in a ratum into this episode. 
After we published 11.3, a dear trans friend of ours reached out to us and very lovingly, I might add, had some suggestions for us on our language and a few things that we reference in this episode. McCall and I think these suggestions are vital in getting this episode right so that we can continue the conversation about trans people and with trans people and how they identify across the board individually in a healthy, inclusive, and open way that not only engages and educates our listeners, but also empowers those who identify differently than cisgendered people. In this episode, though, for example, we talk about Elagabalus, a Roman emperor who sought out gender reassignment and Christine Jorgensen, an American who completed sex reassignment after World War II. We mistakenly talk about these trans-identifying people as the first transgender people in their respective cultures, which implies trans-medicalism, an assumption that our bodies are our genders. McCall and I are aware that modern imaging techniques have shown trans-medicalism to be incorrect and are actively working to rectify our language to reflect this. To be perfectly clear, non-op, pre-op, and mid-transition transgender women are no more and no less than cisgendered women. And the same goes for non-op, pre-op, and mid-transition transgender men being no more and no less than cisgendered men. As you might have probably guessed, McCall and I both identify as cisgendered. That means that our gender as female matches the sex that we were assigned at birth. That also means that we're inevitably going to screw this up some, I promise. But that's part of the learning and growing process, right? McCall and I are doing our best to educate ourselves and to stand as allies in any way that we can, which is in part why we've created episodes surrounding transgender lives and issues and talked with so many beautiful souls who identify as trans, androgynous, and quote, other gendered. Trans stories matter. Trans lives matter. Black Trans Lives Matter. Now with that, let's get back to the show. Honestly, doing the research for this show has opened my eyes to how much is out there that I didn't realize. I feel like in the U.S. we're kind of in this bubble and you know, we're taught that gender is binary and that gender is based on your sex. And a lot of that is just that. But really studying up on what other cultures believe in other countries has really opened my eyes to some of these other genders, so to speak, that have been around for ages. A lot of this is really old stuff. For example, the Mushes in southern Mexico in Oaxaca are children who identify as male at birth, who choose at a young age to be raised as female. And they're embraced in the community. And how about women that want to so the sworn virgins of albania this is fascinating right and it's a practice that's dying out but what's fascinating is that these women can choose at a young age to live as a male for the rest of their lives take a vow of celibacy if their parents didn't have sons so in previous generations it was a patriarchal society and women born at birth could choose to be males to help the family along with a lot of their working, with a lot of their money making, etc. You know, there's texts dating back as far as 4,500 years ago that document transgender or transvestites, specifically priests, 
But also in Europe, there's records of women who passed as men in order to vote, to fight, to study during times when all those things were forbidden for women. It just reminds me of Mulan. Like, this is not as outrageous as we might think it is. <laughs> well, have you ever heard of the Roman emperor? Uh, Alagalagus or something his name is? Dude, look up Roman emperor Alagalagus. Gobbles, gobbles, E-L-A-G. Isn't he one of the first who sought sex reassignment? And he was like an emperor and he wanted to be called the lady or something. Am I crazy? He has one of the worst uh, reputations in Roman history and has come to be known for his sex scandals and religious controversy. Oh, I wonder where I got that. Since he was married five times, I think two women he married four women including a vestal virgin and lavished favors on male courtiers thought to have been his lovers he was also reported to having prostituted himself he abandoned himself to the grossest pleasures with ungoverned fury wow <laughs> that's what edward gibbon wrote that's in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. This says he was the high priest of a phallic-oriented cult and also a transvestite and a masochist. There you go. I was right. Who even toyed with the idea of castration. Yeah. See, he was seeking sex reassignment surgery. I'm telling you, that was it was some like trans history book I had. Interesting. Okay. Wow. And I, I was sure that it was a Roman emperor who a lot of historians consider to be the first transgender figure. I don't think he lived very long. Is that right? He became emperor when he was 14 and he was emperor for five years. And did he die? Yeah, he was murdered. This is awesome. <laughs> I didn't know anything about this. Then he married the Vestal Virgin Aquila Severa. Vesta's high priestess, because the marriage would produce, quote, godlike children. That was a flagrant breach of Roman law and tradition. And any Vestal virgin found to have engaged in sexual intercourse was to be buried alive. Dude's third wife was a descendant of Marcus Aurelius and the widow of a man that he had recently executed. Pomponius Bassus was her first husband. And Elagabalus had him executed and married her. Then he divorced her and remarried the virgin, who's no longer a virgin. Yeah, he was married five times, twice to the same woman. It's really awkward. It says, uh, upon becoming emperor, he took the name Marcus Aurelius Antonius. This is fascinating. Whoa, holy, what the fuck? The Augustan history claims that Elagabalus also married a man named Zodicus, an athlete from Smyrna. Leo says Elagabalus prostituted himself in taverns and brothels. While he was emperor? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Dio, who referred to Elagabalus with feminine pronouns, says he delighted in being called Herocles' mistress, wife, and queen. Whoa, the emperor reportedly wore makeup and wigs, preferred to be called a lady and not a lord, and offered vast sums to any physician who could provide him with a vagina. This dude was way before his time. For this reason, the emperor is seen by some writers as an early transgender figure and one of the first on record as seeking sex reassignment surgery. 
he was killed at 18. His mother embraced and perished with him. Their heads were cut off and their bodies, after being stripped naked, were first dragged all over the city. And then the mother's body was cast aside somewhere or other while he was thrown into the Tiber. It's insane. It seems unfortunate that here in the U.S. we don't recognize transgender. Even as recently as, what, 2014, we know that transgender people aren't allowed to openly serve in the military. You know, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was about gay and lesbian. So some people on the spectrum were taken care of. I think what's interesting about the military and trans people is the first American transgender person that I'm aware of, at least, was Christine Jorgensen, I think was her name. She served in the war in 45. She got done serving and then he became a she. I believe she went to Denmark to get surgery in the early 50s. That's the first transgender person in America that I was aware of. That's awesome. But was that point in American history with TV, I think, and radio that there was so much publicity around it so much news you know it's sensational to have this man who had served in the military change genders and be a very feminine woman and present very feminine and passing so to speak that that's kind of what gave rise you know led up through the what it was it the cooper donuts riot and stonewall and all of that and it wasn't until the 70s that i know a female to male trans person But speaking of female to male, we have a good friend, Ryan, who was born a female and had to wear feminine attire to school in Australia where they grew up. And between gender identity and a family affected by the family disease of alcoholism, Ryan had a pretty tough road with his transition. Let's give them a little bit of Ryan. Let's listen and hear what Ryan has to say. At what age did you speak that? Probably about 11 or something. The funny thing about that was, though, that school uniform, I mean, because in Australia you always wear a school uniform, except in in primary school. In primary school up until I was 10, there was no uniform, but I just pretty much wore the boys' sorts of clothes anyway because that's the clothes that I had. (laughs) That's the clothes that I'd chosen, and that was my brother's older clothes. And at the school uniform i never minded the girls school was actually a really good environment because there wasn't a gender everyone was the same gender and so there was no question there was no comparison there was no the genders being compared to each other and being treated differently everyone got treated the same and so that was actually really good looking back the cracks were starting to appear then from having grown up in an alcoholic house it didn't really have anything to do with gender i was i had no coping skills i didn't know how to form relationships i i just didn't know how to cope with the pressure of schoolwork it was just all bad yeah I ended up leaving there and going to a different I I did a few school changes hoping things would be different so yeah yeah it's basically your geographical cures starting very early (laughs) Um, I would guess too if you didn't have that insight or awareness about alcoholism in your family and how it would affect you that it would be real easy to blame a lot on your body 
that comes into play later on because at 26 I sort of realized I was part of the punk scene and I realized that a lot of my friends were teenagers and I realized in my head I felt like a teenager and I thought this isn't right and then I discovered the whole world of being trans and I found trans stories on the internet which I now had access to and decided to transition realized I had to transition and really decide and then that's that sort of started to unfold but it wasn't that you didn't blame it on your body. Oh, yeah. Around the same time, someone took me to an Al-Anon meeting. And I realise now it must have been in September because they were all talking about making amends. It must have been a, t- a meeting about Step 9. And I didn't understand what they were talking about and I didn't understand how it was relevant to my life. I knew that my family was dysfunctional and that my father was probably a secret alcoholic. But at the time, I was going through this massive basically accepting the fact that I was going to have to transition gender and what that meant. And it was like, ah, oh, all the pieces finally fit in my head about gender. Or looking back, I was starting to piece together. That's why I didn't like wearing girls' clothes. That's why I had trouble at school. That's why this, that, and the other. And I thought, this is the answer. I don't understand this Al-Anon thing. I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know how it relates to me. I need to transition. And so I transitioned, you know, and it wasn't until sort of 16 years after that that I'm sort of thinking, well, I've been living as male for 16 years. I have a really good job. I have a house. I feel like absolute shit and like I'm never going to be happy. Like what? Something is wrong, you know, and though it did, it did tick a lot of the boxes. And yeah, it's unfortunate that it had to happen that way. I think if I'm not that I would not want to be trans, but if I wasn't trans, I wouldn't have had to go through basically two transitions because that's what it feels like. It feels like... When I was at about step three and I realized that I was basically recalibrating how I saw the world and everything was changing, everything was turning on its head, I thought, I've been here before. I've been through this before. I've been through this when I started hormones and and when I realized that I had to tell everyone I know that I'm transitioning gender and that I have a new name and that they need to call me Ryan and that they need to say he and and that everything is going to be different. And it was in a really significant way because I didn't change as a person and and the people who knew me well understood that and saw that eventually. I lost one friend. You know, most people were fine with it. And life went on. And it was interesting going, I think doing the steps for me, the the sort of transition and that transition and the spiritual awakening aspect of that and and, and learning to see things from a, God-centric point of view instead of a me-centric point of view, which Sandy B talks about in his AA talks. I really like that aspect of it. That was the recalibration that I've been through in the past year, and that that's familiar. So the earliest trans history that I could find was Elagabalus in 222, the Roman emperor, And then as far as I know, the hijras on the Indian subcontinent and in Thailand are kind of the next oldest culture. I mean, North American indigenous cultures see third genders, Mm -hmm. the Navajo for sure. Mm -hmm. And there are some accounts in the Middle Ages, I believe, in Europe, mostly male to female. And then in the Balkans, the sworn virgins in the 1400s. So the recorded history of Hijras is over 4,000 years old. The Hijra community has been mentioned in ancient literature, the most known of which is the Kama Sutra. 
And the Kama Sutra was written between 400 BCE and 200 CE. All right. So we see trans people in Rome and we see them in India. We see them a little bit in Thailand and Japan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Mexico, everywhere. Today, at least half a million hijras still live in India and another half a million in Bangladesh, and they're legally recognized as a third gender. In one of our last episodes, we spoke with Celia Daniels on hijras, who identify as the third gender that's now recognized in India. It's one of only two countries that has a third gender option on their passports and visas. Isn't that right? Besides Pakistan, yes. So we decided to have a recap of that interview. One of the things that I studied and really my biggest exposure to India, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but Hijra. Hijras. Hijras, Mm -hmm. which are people born intersexed or hermaphroditic. They're also made intersex too. What I learned was that they were revered because they were not binary gender and therefore must be closer to God than a binary gendered person. Correct. Did you have any exposure to that if you were growing up in that area? So when I was growing up, I was a Christian and Christians were only 6% of the Indian population at the time. So growing up in a minority population of being a Christian, it was interesting for me to see the Hitler people. I saw two hijra women being kicked out of the train because they were hijras and they were trying to sing and make money. I stood there looking at them thinking that I am you. I am actually you, but I don't want to be you because I was a Christian and I could not identify the religion part of it, but I could identify with the gender side of it. And they believe in tradition and they were revered, of course, till the colonialism came to India. They were revered in the temple courts. They were revered as people who are so special that they could bless the child. They could bless the couple. They could bless the household. And that's how they were revered in the time. And there are hijras who are also, some of them are intersexual born that way. And there are some hijras who are made that way. Basically, it's all a part of the transgender umbrella. For instance, if I had chosen to tell my parents and my dad and mom did not accept me, they would kick me out of the house. And so the only option I had was either I can kill myself or go and join the hijra community. So if I go to the hijra community, what they would do is they would castrate your male organs away. And they do it in a very unhealthy way. Those days, there was no medical way of doing it. They did it in the most horrific way. And there you go. So you're in between genders and you don't know. And that's what happens when a person is castrated. So what happens is even though you get some facial hair, it's not as prominent as the other folks. So you're at a point where you become gender neutral at the time. So a lot of uh, hijras are either uh, gender fluid or gender neutral, or they also are castrated and they live as, I would say, a transgender woman. I would say post-op transgender woman. That's the right terminology. Those days they call them as transsexuals, but transsexual is very bad language because it is not about transsexuality, but transgender is what it is about post-op trans, non-op trans, and pre-op trans. And that's how we categorize the entire transgender community. So I am a non-op trans because I have not had surgery and I don't want to have surgery and I can still be a transgender person because being a transgender person is someone who doesn't identify the gender that you're born, then you're transgender. And that's why I feel so comfortable in both my genders. But the hijra community, going back to them, 
So they were, I would say, pre-op transgender. And not all of them could uh, afford surgery at that time. So they sometimes would, they would socially transition, but medically they won't transition. They would dress like a woman, but they had not transitioned completely. They were just living as, and they were still called hijras. And when you were young, what was the social attitude towards that group? The hijra community was more as beggars and performers. And that's what they did because they had to make money and they lived with this nanis or guru nanis, they call them, where they are the heads of the household. So these folks, what they did is they gave them food and shelter and they told them that I will give you food and shelter, but you have to go make money for us. So they have to go and either they work, they dance or they have sex and whatever money they get from that, they have to go and give it to the Guru Nani. And what the Guru Nani decides, you can keep some pocket money here and this money goes to me. Even till today, that's what is happening in India. So Guru Nani's are a cross between Fagin from Oliver Twist and a pimp. They are. <laughs> they identify as a trans person and they do that too. And uh, it's like they've grown old and they're more elderly and have a group of 20 trans people with them. and They become the madam of a brothel. Yeah, more, yeah, exactly. So they run the whole show and uh, they have contacts within the industry. They know the police officers and they know people who want to have sex with trans people. They were the pimps. They used to get money out of it. And that's the kind of life the Hijra community was living in India. And they still live in India. That and day. so you knew of them. You were familiar with them, but you in no way wanted to be a part of that community. I could not relate to them because I was in school and I did not want to come out. But I was thinking to myself that I relate to you, I identify with you, but I don't want to be you. And that was the way I was relating to them. And I was so sad then when they were kicked out of the train, I was looking at them and they looked so pretty and they were like, like me, I was like, oh my God, I see you and I see myself in you, but you're getting kicked out of the train. You're getting kicked out from the hospital. You get kicked out from the schools. You're kicked out from the society in every way. I don't think I can handle that. That's how I was when I was a child. <laughs> so I didn't want that life because I was scared. I was really scared and I didn't want to be kicked out of my home. And I knew that growing up in a traditional Christian family, if I come out, oh my God, that'll be the last thing. And the only option I had if they kicked me out was to go and join the Hijra community. And the Hijra community was a Hindu community. And I can't, as a Christian, I can't go and live in a Hijra community. It was really hard and I couldn't relate to that because religion, I would say faith and God was important to me, even as a child. Even when I felt I was a sinner, even when I felt that I'm going to hell. Even when I was in the verge of dying, I felt like God was there. I knew there was somebody out there, somebody out there who knew what I was going through. So Cassidy, I can't help but think of one name when I think of India and transgender. Are you going to say Lakshmi? I am. Ted Talker. What do you know about Lakshmi? What I know about Lakshmi is she's the face of the third gender and trans advocating rights in India. She's really changing the dynamics of gender in the structure of Indian culture and government. Yeah, and bringing it into the mainstream so that it's actually talked about, so that it can be advocated for the rights of hijras, the rights of third genders. Considering the fact that in the U.S. this is a huge issue. Oh, how about the fact that India didn't decriminalize homosexual acts until 2009? 
I mean, it was literally illegal to have gay sex in India. You know, Lakshmi was one of the main petitioners for that case. Now, in 2009, India's election commission took a big step by allowing transgenders to choose their gender as other on the ballot forms. So is that just a huge leap to go from illegal homosexuality to third gender automatically? I think we'll have to try to get Lakshmi on the show. Find out. What a great idea. Mm -hmm. But India also has transgender games like Olympic Games. I've been doing a lot of research, reading and watching about transgendered athletes in America and some of the debating that's going on with women's sports and transgender women dominating the field significantly. Yeah, tell me about that. Isn't there some controversy right now? There's a lot of controversy. Um, Track team. Black girl who was born a boy. I think it was in Connecticut. 2019 in June. NCAA champion says she gets no benefit from being transgender. She, uh, she's at Texas A&M in Kingsville, Texas. And she does outdoor track. Transgender runners take first and second in Connecticut High School Track Championship. Andrea Yearwood has topped most of the field in the state champions. And this year, she wasn't alone. Two transgender students took the top spots in the Nutmeg State. Yearwood came in second place this year as transgender student Terry Miller of Bloomfield High beat Yearwood and the rest of the biologically female field of competitors. But a lot of people in Connecticut are objecting. There's just so much territory here that is uncharted. And I think it's, I think it would be difficult on either side. I'll be very curious to know how this goes down in the future. Castor Semenya. Do you know who that is? No. That's the track and field female who has an abnormally high testosterone level. IAAF which is some kind of world athletics something or other, has been drafting regulations to ensure female classification because athletes with differences of sex development, there are so many different biological and chemical and physiological factors in gender that anyone trying to categorize and classify gender based on one variable such as testosterone or gonads or secondary sex characteristics, change of voice. It doesn't take into account the variety. I mean, you could be XX chromosome, look and feel perfectly female and have more testosterone than a cis man with XY chromosomes. This whole conversation is really interesting. Of course, I found some information today about some scientists in the field concluding and advocating that gender is binary because the facts say that there are only two sex genders and what you are born as is what you are. Wait, what facts say this? Because there are people with three X chromosomes or XXY or I mean, that. <laughs> where are these facts coming from, Cassidy? That's why I say it's interesting, because scientists in the field, there are some who do say that there are only two genders, there are only two sexes. The rest of them don't exist. But that doesn't jive with what you and I have found. No, not even historically. Right. I mean, American Indians always saw three genders, at least three, if not five. Right. So I feel like that's pretty subjective. 
But what is not subjective and that was really compelling to me is in some of my viewing, I watched this woman who's a runner and was a runner when she was in a male body, but she was the first person who published a paper on this. And it was right around this Title IX complaint about transgender females robbing biologically genetic females from their chance to win competitions and get college scholarships, etc. Well, this transgender runner woman found a significant decline in speed and stamina over the course of hormone treatment. She said between seven and nine months, she lost approximately 12 to 14 percent of her speed and stamina and has replicated those results with other transgender women going through hormone therapy. So the whole um, Semenya woman caster mm-hmm. has above the accepted amount of testosterone in her body and had to undergo hormone treatment to put it in check. She's reported as saying she experienced regular fevers, night sweats, significant weight gain, and constant abdominal pain while taking medication to meet the previous standard for 10 nano whatever per liter of testosterone in her body. And that's from the New World Athletics Policy. I just wonder what that's doing to individuals on a personal level, you know, how that affects you. As a woman who automatically makes an extraordinary amount of testosterone, having to take another hormone to change that just to be able to compete in the thing you love doing. And that was the whole thing that this Andrea girl said from Connecticut, the runner was she's not doing this to win. She's doing because she loves running. It's the one place she feels, you know, at home with her girlfriends. Mm -hmm. And when she and this other trans girl won the state championship or whatever, the findings are that trans women who are beating, quote, biological girls in track and cycling beat them at about 11 to 14 percent speed difference. And that is the exact amount of difference in the decline that men transitioning to women experience when taking hormones and testosterone blockers. I mean, I can see both sides, Cassidy. It kills me because I'm a mom. And like, if that was all my daughter got up every morning and did ice skating every single day and then gets a chance to compete for the Olympic spot and is beat out by three people who went through male testosterone surges in their secondary sex changes as an adolescent and then went through transition. But still, you've developed significantly different body structure and muscles, or I would think that could be really confusing. Oh, I don't know. I can see both sides. I don't know how I feel about it. But what do we do? Do we do like India and have our own transgender games? Maybe that's why they have those, because I don't think that the answer is penalizing trans people or or people who aren't or people who naturally produce more of one hormone or another. I think that we have to evolve to take care of some of these issues. I agree. There are very few cultures throughout history, though, other than like colonial cultures that don't recognize some other gender, something other than the binary. Then my question here is, is the U.S. behind And I say U.S., it could be all westernized countries. I'm not sure. But the U.S. is what I'm familiar with. Are we behind? I think we're starting to catch up. I mean, I feel like, honestly, speaking of track and field and transgendered women, Caitlyn Jenner really moved the bar forward for middle America people. 
everyone knew who Bruce Jenner was. And it was such a public experience for everyone. Grandparents were confronted with the idea. And she looked good. Like she did it right. But just because Caitlyn Jenner became a household name or was a household name and became a household name for something different, for bringing this issue to light, I'm not sure everybody knows her for the right reason. But exposure is a start. The exposure and just the kind of cross-pollination of mentalities is something I believe strongly in because I'm really against the dichotomy and the binaries. I'm really down with spectrum. I'm really down with balance. And I'm down with the yin-yang, the complementary equality, the interdependent flux and flow and... And you know, I like three. It's a better number, much better number than two. Two's so easily divisible. Maybe we're just evolving to this third gender ourselves. Maybe we're getting there. Maybe there is something powerful in the three, like we talked about with Blake, you know, and androgyny and Adam being androgynous. What if the world really is evolving to that? I mean, like, Outside of sex and gender, that spiritually over eons, isn't it possible? And how it lines up with just what we've looked at in this show with Jung and the integration of self. His concept was that the self has to go through stages of integration, first the mask and shadow self. And once you've accomplished that to a certain extent, you're on the next phase of life and you begin to integrate your anima and animus, your male and your female. What if the church is going through that same evolution and integration, individuation? That's what he called it, individuation. What if cultures are individually, but also in a, in a meta kind of way? I don't think it's unreasonable. You know, I, th I think if I've learned nothing from doing exploration on this show, that what I know is so much less than what I don't know, that I don't even know enough to ask the right questions. But that's not a reason that I don't ask. That's what I've learned. That's absolutely true. So three genders is great, but why not have five? Oh, you're talking about the bougies. <laughs> I think they're the boogies. Oh, I like bougies <laughs> better. The bougie bijous. <laughs> they're the priests, right? The shamans? They are. Androgynous bisu are priests and shamans and sorcerers, mediums. The Bugis people are the most numerous of the three major ethnic groups of Indonesia, and they have about three million people. A lot of these Bugis are Muslim, but many pre-Islamic rituals continue to be honored in their culture, including the view that gender and sexuality exist on a spectrum. Most Bugis converted from animism to Islam in the early 1700s. A small amount of boogies have converted to Christianity, but the influence of Islam is still very prominent in their society. In contrast to the gender binarism, boogies society recognizes five genders. The concept of five genders has been a key part of their culture for at least six centuries, according to Associate Professor of Social Sciences Sharon Graham Davies of Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand, citing similar traditions in Thailand, Malaysia, India, and Bangladesh. So what are the five genders? Okay, so the first one is more comparable to cisgender men, which we know. And then I would assume there's a cisgender woman. 
Also a cisgender woman. Okay. So the third one is more comparable to a trans man. And a trans woman. Also the trans woman. Okay, there's four. So the fifth one then is androgynous. Oh, that's the bezus. That's the bezus. And those are the intersexed androgynous shamans who are revered as community priests, right? That they're closer to God, kind of where Hirdra's started, at least. It reminds me of our conversation with Blake and getting closer to God if you are androgynous. Back to maybe that original form that maybe God made man and woman in his image. You know, from one of the earliest ages, my idea of God had something to do with balance. And when I think about genders and I think about the incorporating of masculine with feminine, almost to the point where they balance each other out, they're both so equally present that both of them kind of cancel each other out. It makes me think of quantum physics and mechanics that waves, particles as waves, cancel each other out with interference. And it really makes me consider how detrimental dichotomies and like polar opposite and our black and white thinking as humans, but especially as Americans, it gets me in hot water. And so next week, I will take back over the helm and we will explore things like the number three, seven, and 12. We'll dip our toes a little bit into quantum mechanics and the quantum universe, as opposed to the material reality we're so used to. We're gonna explore some shapes like circles, squares, and triangles and the Truvian Man by Da Vinci and some early concepts of God versus or with man and earth. Sounds exciting. I'm in. Excellent. So we'll see you back next week. Sure hope so. Bye.